0: I'm going to just dive right into this reading of the scriptures today. Today we are in Romans 8, uh, and we're going to start at 12. And we're going to go through verse 17. This is what it says. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that verse 12, uh, in verse 12, Paul says, We're not debtors uh, to the flesh so that we can live according to the flesh. That's how he starts this. Okay? So, he says, We're not debtors to the flesh, but if you look very closely at this, you then get a period. Now, typically what would happen would be the the kind of natural flow here is you would think there would be a contrast. Like, kind of, that's what he does a lot of. He does a lot of contrast. So you'd think it would say, well, we're not debtors to the flesh, but actually we're debtors, we're in debt to the Spirit. And for what the Spirit has done. That's what people typically think that this is saying. But if you read it very closely, you realize, actually, no, there's a period there. And he actually kind of changes it a little bit. What he actually does is he says, you're not debtors to the flesh. And in terms of what it is that you owe... Or what you are bound to hear, he actually leaves it at that. You're not in debt. In fact if you move ahead to Romans 13, uh, Paul actually says that we're to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Except to love one another. So Paul says that the only debt that you have is that you need to be loving each other no matter what. You need to love one another at all costs. You're in debt to love one another. Now, as I thought about this, and I prayed about this, I, and I, I just kept having this, uh, this thought, right? And hopefully you can join with me in this. Like, could, could you even imagine? Could you imagine if Christians actually took this passage seriously? This one that we're going to get into a lot more in depth uh, in a few weeks when we get to Romans 13. Like, at least in my circles, and the people that I'm in community with, in the, growing up all the way to now, like, most people, most of us, When we become Christians, we become Christians and we then think that the point is we need to change all of our behavior. We think that that's that's our obligation, that's what we do, so that's where all of our energy goes. We think, okay, because Jesus died for our sins, now we owe him to make sure that. In our lives, we just don't ever sin anymore. And you guys know me. I'm not a person who tells you you should keep sinning. Don't sin. We should we should really work to stop doing that. That's a good thing. But what if, okay, just what if maybe possibly, what if we realized that when you become a Christian, your job, your purpose, your sole purpose is to now, not just, is your purpose is not to not sin. Your purpose is to, just like Don was saying, actually reflect wholeness and reflect Jesus to the world. And what if you realize that you only reflect Jesus to the world by how you love the world and how you love them? I think if we viewed our salvation that way, a whole lot more people would become Christians and we'd reach a lot more people. Now, I think that it's important that we make this distinction. And and I'm going to say something to you that, honestly, I think probably two years ago I may have disagreed with. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Definitely at some point in my life, the Jacob of a few years ago would have disagreed with this. But as I'm studying, especially this passage in Romans, and I'm studying the scriptures, and I'm studying the gospel more and more and more, it's very important that we make the distinction that there is a requirement to love, but we don't owe anything to Jesus. Despite Jesus doing everything for us, now, it's very easy to think that Jesus has put us in his debt by dying for us and for our sins. But when you, if you view your life that way, what you start to say is you start to think the cross was alone. The cross was not alone alone. I, trust me. I feel this way a lot. I often feel like man I owe Jesus everything for what he did for me and certainly by our world standards. That would be true Yes, we we, we would owe him everything now. Here's the difference whether I owe him it or not I want to give Jesus everything. I want my whole life to be about him I still want to live my life giving everything that I have to him But you have to understand this from the perspective of justification and how God sees you the cross was a gift Jesus did not die so he could then require a bunch of things from you. Jesus died so that he could free you from a life that bound you, the person who you once were, so that you can be the person who you're created to be and you're called to be. Grace is not something that you were given with a mortgage attached to it, that you now have 30 years to pay off. And if you, that's, that's if you don't refinance, then you have 60 years to pay off or however long it goes for most people, right? That's what the flesh was. That's what Paul is describing. This is the flesh. We were in debt to our flesh, to our desires, to our own sinful nature. Don and I, we know what it's like to have debt. And that debt has actually controlled our ability to live the fullest kind of life. Anybody who's in debt or who's ever been in debt And then maybe one day becomes free of that You know the difference in your life That it makes to not have to Suddenly pay every month on that bill Not have to go back and pay for this thing That is, you don't even have anymore whatever it might be Suddenly you can actually When you clear that What can you do? You can begin to realistically And truly begin planning ahead And saving And building that life That you've always dreamed of But when you have debt Which I, I hate debt but when you have debt, what, what, what happens is all that you make, financially speaking, is already tied up into your past, and it makes it so you're unable to plan for your future, and work toward your future, and build for your future. That's the way I would define debt. It's when you, it's when what you make is already tied up in your past, so you're unable to put it toward your future. So that's what it is to be in debt to the flesh in that same way. It keeps you bound to who you used to be and it prevents you from being who you were created to be. But again, it does not say that you're now in debt to the spirit. What it says is you're no longer in debt. You're no longer in debt to the flesh. And it says if by the spirit you then put to death the deeds of the body, it says then you're gonna live. In other words... It is only by the Spirit that you're ever going to live the kind of life that Jesus died for you to live. The Greek word pneuma, which is the word Spirit, it appears in Romans chapter 8 20 times after only appearing five times in the book of Romans all the way before that, leading up to this moment. 20 times in one chapter after only five times in the entire book before then. So it's very apparent that the spirit is the central theme of this chapter. It's very important. And it's fascinating because chapter 8, for if you understand like the flow of Romans, chapter 8 is kind of where everything changes. It's kind of this culmination. It's, it's this climax. It reaches its pop- proper conclusion at this moment here in chapter 8. And the entire thing lands on the Holy Spirit. It seems to be Paul's end all, his cure to the human condition. He says, Jesus paid for it. We know that, right? Jesus paid for it, and now the Spirit is going to guide us through it. And of course, we understand from Jesus that the Spirit never speaks on his own account. He never speaks on his own terms. He always represents Jesus in what he says. I just want to encourage you today, before we go any further with this message, and we're going to get into some really neat stuff in a few minutes, live your life relying on the holy spirit rely on him trust him believe him seek him seek him every day about your life god truly does care about your life god truly does care about the small things in your life the minor details the trips to the grocery store the kids day at school most of us we go through days and we get so busy with so many things and we get lost in all the noise of our world and we never take the time to just rest in the glory of God and ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit will you guide me through my day today? Will you help me to make the right decisions today? Will you help not put me in places that I shouldn't be? Will you be my coach today? Now what we're going to learn about in a moment is that we've actually been adopted into the family of God And with that adoption comes an inheritance and with that adoption comes immediate access to all that the father has and that includes the Holy Spirit so in verse 15 it says for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons see in Roman culture particularly adoption was a really really big deal There was a Latin phrase, it was uh, patria potestas, and what it means is it means the power of the father. You see, in early Roman culture, the father had all the power over the family. In fact, the family law in that day actually gave fathers the power of life and death over their children. It wasn't always a good thing, but it was how families were ruled. And the thing that was crazy about this in Roman culture was this went until the father died. So like in our culture, maybe you're, you, you turn 18, you come of age, you leave the house, and now you have your own family, now you rule your own family. And that day, you know, when I get married to Dawn, she now goes under the rule of my dad. Yeah, right? <laughs> She's looking at me like, glad we're not in Rome. <laughs> my dad's not here today i'm joking he'll probably listen to the podcast i'm sorry dad no uh so but so it went until the father died it, it didn't even end when the son himself became a father it was now the grandfather that now ruled the family that's how it went so it was very you had to be very you have to understand like the when you enter a family you adopt adopted into a family you marry into a family what it was that you were joining with but when the father did die his inheritance went to his children so when you're adopted into a new family, which adoption was a bit different back then, but you are actually being joined under the rule of a new life leader. You were laying down the rights that you had in your old family, or if you were an orphan, then you had a certain freedom that you were not now having to give up if you were to be adopted. You weren't on your own anymore. Those, the, all those rights were gone forever. You now are under the rule of this new family and this new father. But what you gained is all the rights of sonship. All of them in the new family. In Rome, just as it should be, there was no distinction between biological or adopted children. A son is a son. And what would often happen, happen was someone would adopt another person into their family because they'd realize that they're, maybe they're running out of time and there was, no, uh, there was nobody to pass it all on to. There was nobody to pass legacy on to. In, in fact, people would even adopt adults in that day at times. But the process, in that process... You always had to consider Patriot Protestus. You had to consider this. Because, yes, you get an inheritance, but you also go under the rule, the leadership. But it's not a debt. It's a place in the family. Now, just in, in Rome, some examples include Julius Caesar, who adopted Augustus. Augustus Caesar, the most famous Caesar of all time, he was adopted now, Augustus gained all the rights as the son of Caesar, the highest rule in the land, um, the moment he adopted him and w- when he died. So when Julius Caesar died, what happened was uh, history records this large star that appeared in the sky. It, history records it as Caesar's comet. It's about Julius Caesar. And then suddenly, in an instant, that star shot away into nowhere. And what, what, they, would say, what they had then said about the star was they said, okay, that star... So what the wise men would say, they'd say that star was actually Julius Caesar ascending into heaven because he was, he was God. He was just that big. That was Julius Caesar. And so then Augustus hears that and he thinks, well, if Julius Caesar is God and I'm his son, well then I'm, what does that make me? That makes me the son of God. I showed you this coin a few, uh, at the beginning of the series. That, so then he puts his face on these Roman coins and with an imprint that says D-I-V-I-F, which means son of the divine. And it just stuck. So during Paul's day, uh, f- about fifty years later, um, Nero became Caesar. Right, Claudius Caesar adopted Nero. So again, it was another Caesar, highest highest rule, uh, highest law of the land. A person's adopted into, and then so uh, so Claudius uh, Nero's mother marries Claudius. Claudius, um, and th- then she actually murders Claudius. And then but but and then but when and then when Claudius is killed who becomes Caesar Nero her son does because there was an adoption So what's happening here according to Paul is you're going from a person right who 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 was once in debt and suddenly you were once a slave you were once in debt you once had a master and suddenly you're now getting the, the you're now the heir to the greatest kingdom on the, imaginable and that they would have resonated with that. You're now, you are now—you went from a person who your entire paycheck goes to paying for your past, when there's very little opportunity for any future at all, and suddenly you go from that to being a son of the family of God, an heir to everything. But Paul warns us. He says, okay. Okay, you've been given everything. We've been adopted into God himself. It's fascinating. That's amazing. But he says, but don't you dare go back to who you used to be remember what we've been saying we've been talking a lot um, especially when we got into Romans 6 6, 7 and now 8 about how these three chapters particularly are a bit of a retelling of the Exodus narrative and for, for Israel what happened Right, God did this amazing act of grace he brings them out of slavery he brings them out from the rule of Pharaoh, out from the hand of Egypt and yet they just keep wanting to do what? They keep wanting to go back. It's better in Egypt. It's better in Egypt. Well, there's a parallel. Remember, the Torah was always written in four layers. It was always read in four layers. Is what I mean? It was always read in four layers. And so the the first thing, of course, is what's plainly going on. The fourth layer was what's the secret meaning, what's hidden behind it. Like what's the meaning that's behind the meaning. And the story in the book of Exodus, right, Egypt was the oppressive rule. And Egypt was a symbol for the sin that controls our lives. The flesh, the life that we have, when we're always looking backwards, and we're always controlled by our past, we're in debt to this thing that we just can't let go of, without a hope for a future. It robs us of our future. So the story of the exodus is our story, which we've talked about that in depth. But we've been set free. Yet why do we keep wanting to go back to who we used to be? But remember, living life in the flesh, it's slavery. If you live that way you're a slave. Just like Israel was enslaved all those years to Egypt. But look at what it look at what this says. It says for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now this is very important. It does not say to fall back into sin. It says to fall back into fear. Don't fall back into fear. You know, the world is controlled by sin. Sin runs rampant in the world. The world needs Jesus to just come into it, to wash it white as snow. We cannot save ourselves. As people who understand that, we realize the world is not going to be able to save itself. But as Christians... As people who have already kind of come to terms with what it means to be a Christian, with people who have already come to terms with what it means that we need Jesus to wash us and and give us new life. People who have already acknowledged how sinful we are and have now acknowledged our need for the grace of God to rescue us and for the Holy Spirit to sort of turn us into who we're supposed to be. For us, for Christians, I am convinced that one of the most dominant things that that causes Christians to fear is sin. Uh, that causes Christians to sin is fear. James says it like this. He says, it is a sin to know what you're supposed to do, but then just to not not do it. And oftentimes, I, I think that we base so much of our lives around how we're affected by something that we begin to convince ourselves that it's okay to not help people or it's okay to not stand up for the marginalized, or the least of these, or whatever it may be, because the person that we would be helping could be a threat to us, or to the life that we have, or to the experiences that we have going for us. Fear is the thing that stands in the way of most people loving their neighbor the way that they're supposed to. Fear is the thing that stands in the way of many people welcoming the stranger. But let it not be so. We were not adopted into the family of God just so that we can live in a castle in heaven please hear that we were not adopted into God's family just so we can go sit in a castle in heaven and drink drink some delicious drink <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. we're still under the rule of the father and the father's command is to love in fact the only the, the, the definition of God is love God is love listen the Christian life is not meant to be an easy life the calling that God has placed on your life, I believe if you truly walk in it, you will absolutely, absolutely find wholeness and it will be life to you. And you'll find fulfillment. But that does not mean that it is going to be easy. I was talking to a friend this week about calling. We were talking about calling and trying to navigate that and sort that all out and um, becoming who you're supposed to be. And I think a lot of people miss their calling because of fear. Because they're, they're, they're afraid, because the, the thing that God really has for them, it, it comes as, at a cost that seems just a little too high for them to want to pay in that moment. So what we do is we, we kind of cower away from it. And I told them two things that I think prevent us from our calling. And I know that there's a lot of other things that prevent us, but where I was in my studies and in my life and in my mind at that moment, these were the things that were on my heart. And the things that I warned them about were coveting and comfort. Now, we talked about coveting a couple of weeks ago. If we can't delight in the call of God in our lives, if we cannot delight in the mission that God has given us and the life that God has given us, and we can't embrace where he has us, then we're never going to be who we're supposed to be in the place that he has us. And what we don't realize is that if we think that the grass is going to be greener someplace else, all you got to do is get to that other place, and see the grass and live in it for a little while. And before you'll realize, if I just watered it a little bit more where I was, it probably would have been greener there. But you won't water something that you despise. If you can't find delight in the life that God gave you, you're never going to work to cultivate the life into what it's supposed to be and what it could be, right? So it's very important that we, that we embrace where we are. But on the other hand, we also can get too comfortable there. And if we get too comfortable doing whatever it is that we're doing, then we'll begin to guard against anything that has the potential to threaten that comfort. We'll reject the impulse to be generous because we're gonna wanna make sure that we have enough. We'll think, oh, I can't give that to them because I need that for me to do that. I gotta, whatever it might be. But again, the Christian life, it's not meant to be comfortable. It's meant to be messy. It's supposed to be messy. Because people are messy, and situations are messy. And God needs people who are willing to see through the messes and find the potential in people. And find the potential in circumstances and in places that seem broken. So, I'm going to show you, So, I'm going to work backwards here. I'm going to show you something at the very end of this passage and then work backwards. And here on out, this, this stuff is really, really cool. I hope you can follow this because I, I'm really excited about this. But the passage today ends... By saying, it ends with this line, it says we're heirs with God, we're heirs heirs of God, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now to me this is incredible, as I was studying this. The word here for suffer with him, because this confuses people, I think. And so I did this this word study here on suffer with him. And the word is actually a variation of the Greek word for suffering, but it's not your normal, it's not the full word for suffering. Uh, It's actually quite similar to the word empathy. It's the Greek word, uh, uh, and it means to feel pain together. It means to share in someone else's pain. Or it means to share with someone. The only other time in the entire Bible that you get this verse is in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And it's, it's talking about the church as the body of Christ. And what it says is when one member suffers, everyone suffers with them. Because we're a family. Naturally, our lives should be a reflection of people who share in the sufferings of Christ because it is in the sufferings of Christ that leads the world to its hope. But he has suffered on behalf of the whole world. You have to see this for what it is. See, in in life, you're going to suffer sometimes. Sometimes things are going to not go the way you want them to. But this is not saying that in the moments in life when there is no pain and when you don't feel like you're suffering that you're not sharing in the glory of Christ. It's not saying that at all it's not saying that you have to constantly be suffering all the time like we have to be suffering just to be okay like i i like like let me give you an example like for me in my own life i'd like to believe that if somebody put a gun to my head and was like deny jesus that i wouldn't deny him i'd like to believe it would be like no i'm not going to deny jesus i'd like to believe in my heart you know, I, I laid out my life for you, Jesus, right in this moment, if that's what needs to be happening, if that's what needs to happen. And, but I think that's what we view suffering as. is like you're being persecuted because you love Jesus, and that's it. But I don't think that suffering like Christ has anything to do with whether or not you know Jesus or not in that moment. Like, hey, do you deny him? Like, again, I, 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 you shouldn't deny Jesus. But I don't, it's that, I don't think that's what it's talking about here. As much as it's talking about what are you willing to lose for the sake of somebody else to gain the love of Christ? See, for Jesus, he always suffered for people. If you're one of those people who just always has to be suffering all the time, afterwards, Don and I will pray for you for that. You don't need to be suffering all the time. We'd love to pray for you. The point is not that. The point is that we are willing to lay down our lives if that's what it's going to take to demonstrate to the world how much Jesus loves them. We're willing to lay down our lives, or in some instances, we're willing to lay down our time, or our energy, or our gifts, or our treasures for the sake of showing somebody else what the love of Christ looks like. For the sake of showing others, Christ died for you. Christ died for me. Let me give you a bit of an example of this. I know I keep talking about the reconciliation table because it's obviously like the thing we're doing this summer. I'm really, really excited about it. A good handful of you have come out several times. Some of you come out several times a week and help us with this. Yesterday was one of the hottest days of the entire year. The day before that, also very, 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 very hot. And a lot of people were out working in that heat. A lot of us work really, really hard out there. But nobody works harder than my wife on this. Nobody works harder than Dawn on this this project. I, I just say that proudly and boldly. She was there all day long Friday. Then Saturday morning she got up at 5 in the morning. She was at the lot by 6 in the morning and we didn't leave until the storm came. It was like 7, 7.30 whatever it is and it was like getting dark and we had to just leave, right? So we're working like crazy on this garden and a lot of us are and a lot of us are very tired from doing this. But we're not doing this garden right? Because we're driven to complete a project so we can check it off a list and move on. We're not doing it so we can pat ourselves on the back and give each other a high five and say, good job, we built a table and it's really, really long and then we built a pergola over it and it's even longer and it's, yeah, good job. It's not about that. You don't show up on the hottest day of the year and stay in the sun all day long just so you can give a few high fives. She's there. And all of us who go for any period of time, we are there because we want to show the community what the love of Jesus looks like and some days it's really really hard and other days it's so rewarding that it doesn't even feel like work because that's how it goes but for us right now that just looks like working really really hard to create something special for our neighbors and it is working already it's working yesterday a man came he drove his car up he, put, he got out and i went over to talk to him and he's like hey i have another lot he's like will you do this on my lot if i give you this like wow that's amazing it, it, the, people he, somebody else came by They're like what you're building nobody builds in this neighborhood nobody's building anything they're just getting really really excited people come by that lot and we never even tell them that we're a church and when they leave they say i'll be in church on sunday I'm like, cool do you know where our church is they don't care you know it doesn't you know you don't even know where it is but how do they even know we're a church we didn't even tell them but they see us working on something that is for them and they know that it's for them. And they know that's not the way the world works. The world doesn't do things for other people not like that. You have to be willing to hurt a little if it means helping someone. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And I'm not trying to downplay the reality of true suffering. People, there are people who are truly marginalized. There are people who truly suffer. There are people who are sick beyond anything that I can ever even imagine. And, and that's a big deal, but I don't think that Paul is just saying if we randomly suffer, we're like Christ. God can use any pain, but Jesus was willing to give himself to a cause that he knew people would kill him for because it meant that they would be redeemed because of it. But I'm telling you, if you want that glory, if you want to be glorified with Christ, do the work Of laying down whatever it is that needs to be laid down in your life so that you can spread the glory of God and the message of what already has been done throughout the world. Now, this particular passage, to me, it really seems like that. It's like more so how do we live every day more so than how do we handle suffering when it comes? What are we in debt to? The only thing that we're in debt to is love, to love one another. And that is how we live every single day, by loving others at any cost. But honestly, church, when you put yourself there and you see the world for as broken as it is, if you have a heart for Christ, it is going to hurt so bad that you're truly willing to do anything that you can to reconcile it. Your heart and the things that you feel will launch you into the places that you're supposed to be, the places you're supposed to go, the people you're supposed to reach. That thing that breaks your heart, whatever it is, is probably a telltale sign of why you were, of what you were brought here to put healing to and bring healing to. Now one more, one more time I want to read this verse, verse 15, and I want to look at one more thing, kind of in light of that fact about suffering and the fact how loving others is going to hurt sometimes to love them like Jesus. But it's a, it's a messy calling, but it's, it's what we're called to. But read re what this says. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba is a fascinating one. and It comes from the Greek word uh, ab. It's the Greek word. The Greek word ab is the word father, which is, it's fascinating because uh, father Abraham was father Abraham. Yeah, father. Fa- yeah, interesting, right? But Paul, he's not writing in Hebrew. He's writing in Greek and actually the word's Aramaic. Uh, I did a, a word study on this word uh, and this, this blew my mind and this really surprised me. And I don't, I've never heard anybody make this correlation. So maybe it's just totally out there and it's crazy. I don't know. I'm sorry if it is. But the word is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Only three times at all. It's used once by Jesus and twice by Paul. And the two times that Paul says it, both times he uses the word cry or crying. He's crying this out. He says in Romans, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we receive the spirit and it's by the spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Okay? Okay. The other one is Galatians 4.6, which is also about adoption, and it says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So both times he refers to it as crying, but also, if you look closely, both times it's the Spirit speaking through someone. By the Spirit we cry Abba. That's how we do it. In John 14, Jesus actually tells us, uh, he he actually tells us the Holy Spirit is our comforter. And it's only by him that we're able to cry, Abba, Father. So this crying to Abba, it seems that these are the moments in which things seem so bad, we don't even know how to ask God for help. So the Holy Spirit does it through us, and we cry, Abba. A few verses later in Romans 8, it actually says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Um, for We don't know how to pray how we ought, and we're, we're too weak to figure that out, but the Spirit intercedes with us on these groanings that are too deep for words. It goes on to say that the Spirit will intercede for us according to the will of God. Hey, how do we make you whole? How do, we, how do you step into who you're supposed to be? I believe that the calling, that us calling on Abba is just that. It is the Spirit praying for us when we don't know how to do it ourselves. In moments, in our lives, and in our calling, and in our mission, in our friendships, in our family, when everything just seems too messy. It seems to be way beyond our own control, way beyond what we can handle. It's like the Spirit is telling us that, call on the Father, and He'll rescue you. The language actually being used twice here, Abba, uh, cry Abba, cry Abba, that's fascinating to me. Very fascinating. It's almost like it's out of desperation, but this is what soul me on it. The only other time you get the word Abba in the whole New Testament is from the mouth of Jesus himself, and it is in Mark 14. And in that moment, he's crying. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where he'll be arrested. Gethsemane means the place of the press. It was named after a wine press. And we we talked pretty thoroughly on how uh, we, the processes, right, crucibles and wine presses and the process that we have to go through to become who we want and who God has for us to be. And we, we know that Jesus, he's about to go to the cross. And Mark's gospel records Jesus as he's saying, I'm exceedingly sorrowful. I'm even unto death. That's how bad this is right now. And then it says this. It says that Jesus then says, Abba, Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now this moment is understood in a variety of ways. Some people believe that Jesus was having second thoughts on whether or not he was actually willing to die for the sins of the world. I personally don't believe that. Jesus was arrested during Passover the last supper was a Passover Seder. We did a, a teaching on that a few months ago. At the Seder meal, everybody would drink four cups. And what would happen was when you would drink the cup, you would drink as deeply of the wine as you could before letting the cup pass from you to the next person. And at the bottom of the cup there was all these dregs and there were seeds and everything that would just sort of settle at the bottom. And nobody wanted to drink that last drink. Nobody wanted to drink deeply of all that bitterness. Well, there was a tradition, a Passover tradition, that the person who took that last drink would have to drink all of the stuff that settles on the bottom. Like, I don't want to be that guy. You drink all the stuff that settles on the bottom, and it would be bitter. It would be a nasty drink. And they would take it all down, and they would take that cup, they would refill it with fresh wine, And then they would let that cup pass from them to the next person. So what Jesus was saying is, if it be possible, let me take the last drink. Let me take it all and let me do it all in one drink. If drinking this takes care of humanity, if it is truly what humanity needs, let me drink so deeply that I clear everything out that's in there so that when I pass that cup onto the world, it can be full again. If it be possible, he's saying, I want to take it all. I want to take everything, every bitter experience, every last disgusting drink, all the junk that's lingering in our lives. He's saying, let me take the weight of this. Let me do the thing that will help everybody else. Let me suffer so that they can find wholeness. Let me take the tears and the death and the mess that all these people keep making of their lives and let me drink so deeply so as to empty the cup of all that bad and fill it with fresh wine, fill it with new life before letting it pass from me to them. The suffering that Jesus endured was for the sake of you and I to now be able to drink from that cup full, to have the fullest life, to not be bound to our flesh anymore, but to be set free And when we're willing to sacrifice and to give up our place for somebody else or to lay down our comfort for somebody else, we can actually experience that love of Jesus and we can actually reflect that love of Jesus through our lives in that moment. And when we do that, then we will be glorified with God because every time that we do things that look like Jesus, we're spreading the glory of Jesus throughout our world. The church exists to bring wholeness to broken places. We were not adopted into the family of God where we're now able to just live in the grace of God and are now heirs of everything that's God's. We were not adopted into that just so we could let fear send us back to who we used to be. People who live our lives for ourselves and do things that look nothing like Jesus. No, we were created to love even when it hurts. And that's precisely what Jesus did for us.